What's new in science this week? What's new in science this week? Bench talk, the week in science. Bench talk. Bench talk. Bench talk. You are now listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. Bench Talk, the, the week, week in science. science. Dave Robinson here. We've got a great show for you this week. Today you'll hear from undergraduate researchers talking about chromosome structure and then there's a story on the physics of baking a cake. And it all ends with a short poem on that topic. So let's get right to it. First is Amanda Fuller, Executive Director of the Kentucky Academy of Science. She'll introduce some student researchers on two different projects about telomeres. Now, telomeres are these repetitive DNA sequences that are located at the ends of linear chromosomes. And they have a lot to do with maintaining the integrity of DNA. So telomeres are really quite important. Take it away, Amanda. Hi, this is Amanda Fuller from the Kentucky Academy of Science. And I am interviewing two researchers today who were winners in the student competition at the Kentucky Academy of Science annual meeting. They won award in the computers and information science section. I am talking today to Murray Baker and Haven Jacob from Eastern Kentucky University, and they did a study called Failure of Fungal Telomeres to Maintain Sequence Integrity at Chromosome Ends in Magna Porte. Thanks for joining us, Murray and Haven. I'm so glad that you could join us on Bench Talk to talk about your research. Do you want to tell us briefly what the research is about? Yeah, I can gladly do that. So our research basically covers the instability and the integrity of chromosome ends in the different Magnaportha Arise populations. And throughout the research, we have noted that the Magnaportha Arise genome has remarkably unstable telomeres. Is Magnaportha Arise a plant? It's a fungal pathogen. Yeah, fungal pathogen. <laughs> so this is, this is important to plant pathologists probably. Yes. Oh, for sure. This actually, we found it has a rapid evolutionary pace and it's able to jump host species faster than most other pathogens we've seen, which of course, going off the word pathogen alone, you can assume that that's not a good thing. So in a lot of South African countries, it's been wiping out their food sources. So people are really trying to get a grip on this, it sounds like. You all had um, an, an interesting research process, and um, I would like to hear a little bit about what that process look like of doing the study and also what it was like to work as a team remotely um, during the pandemic. Okay, so originally our genomes were generated at the UK Plant Pathology Lab and 145 Magnaportha Risi strands were originally sequenced and that led to be over 1,150 telomere junctions, which we had to manually interrogate and then working with such a massive data set, we come to realize that you really cannot manually interrogate everything that needs to be done. So we had to use multiple programs such as Seekathello, Blast, and Unix command line. We used Unix command line to format the data in a way that we could insert it into Google Sheets. And then we used the Blast report to identify the motor sequences that were among the telomere junctions to make sure that matches we had were not with the motor sequences themselves. As for working remotely, we do work a lot through different terminals, which is just a database 
But um, it is just something through our computer. So although we are in a dry lab and we work with a lot of programming in here, we could still finish it remotely, but it was pretty difficult because, or at least it was for me. Again, I know my teammates flourished and they dragged me along on a leash for a while, but thank goodness they did because eventually I got on. But one thing we did learn is we worked in the summer in collaboration with UK and Western. And even though it was a lot more difficult to understand such advanced programming, we learned to work together. And so not only our friendships, but our teamwork grew so much stronger than we thought it would. I love hearing that because, you know, we are all learning how to work as teams remotely. So, you know, scientists are doing this all over the world and it's interesting to hear how you all are managing that. It's also great to hear, you know, for the Kentucky Academy of Science, you know, we're a society of people all over Kentucky and your project really was a collaboration bringing in folks from different institutions and analyzing data from another institution. And I just love seeing that collaborations. Now you told me there was something really surprising in the results that you got when you analyzed all this data. So let us talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so we went into this project. So it was a previous study done at UK that they started picking up on a pattern where they saw that the telomere adjacent and the telomere junction sequences, the telomere junction is the sequence itself of the telomere and the adjacent is the sequence right next to it. The patterns that were expected for telomere integrity and telomere adjacent sequences weren't following what we thought. So a little bit of background on that. Telomeres, the entire purpose of them is to protect the vital chromosome DNA. And in order to do that, they get degraded over time through a lot of different natural processes. So if they were efficient at their job at protecting this DNA, then technically we should see an identical, if not super similar sequence all the way through the species and through a lot of other related species as well. When we actually looked at the sequences, we saw that they weren't maintained in the host or their neighbors or any relatives of theirs, showing that maybe telomeres aren't as stable as we previously thought because the only reason they would be changing or at least moving, which is another theory we're looking at, is that they might be moving into the chromosome rather than just falling off. So the only reason that the telomere junction and adjacent sequences wouldn't be found in those species or different hosts is because they weren't maintaining the integrity and pretty much they weren't doing their job properly. So we decided as our project, we were gonna delve a little bit further into this with a larger sample size to see if this pattern was just a sampling error or if it was actually something that we were seeing biologically. We went into this, and as Marie explained, we used a lot of different programming, and we looked at a lot of data, manual interrogation, automatic interrogation, a lot of really gruesome processes, honestly, or grueling processes. And we ended up finding out that by looking at the populations and the sequences maintained in those populations in different countries around the world that the previous theory of horizontal gene transfer that we thought was the explanation for the switching of these sequences was actually incorrect or at least the hypothesis of it was rejected at the time so we actually are leaning towards now and we're working on a publication about the integrity of telomeres but also the new thing that we found that it's instead of horizontal gene transfer it's something called differential retention is this researchers really trying to get a handle on that mutation process that you referred to earlier? Yeah. Um, yes, the plant pathogen. So we went in looking at the telomeres. So by studying this and being able to see exactly where these sequences are going and how not the mutation, but actually we're kind of challenging or at least being innovative. I don't know how working on top of a previous theory that the telomeres, their entire job was protecting the chromosome. 
now we're looking at, okay, well, this evolutionary process is much faster. The telomeres aren't maintaining integrity like we originally thought. So if we can get a grasp on exactly how this is happening, since we haven't seen it before, we can go a little bit further into how it's wiping out food sources and hopefully people can build off of us. We're publishing it to a journal that has to do with cancer research because a lot of what we're looking at turns out has to do with different cancers and oncogenes as well. So I'm curious, it sounds like you all have really learned a lot and developed a lot of skills in the process of doing this research. And I wonder, what do you see your career trajectory like as scientists? What do you see yourself doing in the future? So I know personally, I'm trying to get to medical school right now. And I want to be a pediatric general physician. As for research, something I've learned through this entire process and working with our mentors from all of the universities is that once I get there and once I actually become a physician, I would like to kind of do some kind of program to where I can be teaching medical students as well and doing research with them because I also help teach a genetics class right now. So with all of these things combined and even through COVID, I realized how much I actually enjoy teaching and researching and finding questions that no one else even thinks about. So Personally, I want to get through med school first, and hopefully once I get that career solidified, I can go back and also do either a research team or some kind of teaching medical students program. I'm not sure what that would specifically be called. And then I kind of want to do the same thing similar to Haven. I do plan on going to medical school after I graduate here at EKU, and I would like to continue research just because I do like to ask these innovative questions, and I like to understand how processes work and why they work and everything like that. So I do think research is a good way to do that because it's always changing. Like this field's always changing. There's always new stuff arising and there's always something new you can look at. So I do think research is a great way to do that. So that's something I'd be very interested in continuing in the future. Well, Marae Baker and Haven Jacob, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about your research. I think this is so interesting and it really does just embody a lot of the things that the Kentucky Academy of Science is promoting. So thanks for sharing your work. Good luck to you in the future. And um, thanks, for, thanks for joining us on Bench Talk. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Hi, this is Amanda Fuller from the Kentucky Academy of Science again. And I am interviewing some of our student researchers from the Kentucky Academy of Science annual meeting. And today I'm in the studio with Trey Stansfield, who's from Western Kentucky University. Trey did some research on telomeres. We're going to talk about that a little bit today. The research is called Telo Report, Extraction and Classification of Telomeric Raw Reads and Identification of Potential De Novo Telomeres. Welcome, Trey. Hello. I'm glad to be here. I'm disappointed that my co-author, Seth Buchanan, could not come as it was really the kind of brains behind the front end of the program, the actual TILA report, though I kind of understand enough of the basics to tell you about it, along with the kind of reasons why we do it and how we use it. Great. Well, I'm glad that you can join us. I want to start by asking you a little bit about how this research came about. You said that this was really only research that happened because of the pandemic in 2020. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more what you mean by that. As part of the Denton Academy at WK, they have a study abroad opportunity where you go to Harlexton in England to your English 200 class. Of course, that was canceled last summer because of COVID. And then when I was taking my bioinformatics course, my professor, Dr. Reinhardt, told, told the whole class about this research opportunity at UK. And if anyone was interested, they should go email him. I did. And then I ended up doing telomere research at UK under Dr. Farman. 
So a silver lining for you, even though yeah. um, the year didn't turn out the way uh, most people thought that it was going to. This kind of research would have been done at UK. You would go down there, they would have uh, computers set up, you would work on them, you learn to code, they'd give you like a stipend while you live there. Well, it was pretty easy to come to do at home because it was a lot of computer work. So they could a set of virtual machines that you just contacted on your own computer. And it was nice to have a stipend all to yourself. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So tell us briefly what the research is about. What was the purpose of the research? Yeah. So in a broad sense, there's a fungus called Manaportha oryzae, and it's related to Magnaportha grise, which is a kind of fungus that attacks rice, a lot of other crops like barley and things. So, but this fungus is interesting because it actually has pretty unique telomeres. The telomeres are just the genetic data at the end of a genome. It's cut off the deal with the three base pair loss every time it replicates. This fungus actually has the ability to increase its telomeres length. It also has the ability to use retro transposons to actually move genes closer to the telomere. So the interesting is that, so these genes are close to the telomere, so when the telomere rebuilds itself, it'll also cause mutations in these genes, which can be advantageous. So that's kind of interesting about this. So we wanted to study how these newly formed telomeres called the novo telomeres formed. And to this, there was kind of a dual process. So one is that current uh, genome assembly techniques are kind of known to leave out a lot of telomere data. So that's a flaw that that we wanted to fix. So Seth worked on building a program called Chilo Report that would better analyze data to find the telomere using a scoring matrix. It was coded in C++. And of course that helped me because it was able to sort the genomes. So I could look at them, see which of these genomes were like singleton reads that weren't grouped. Those would be presumably de novo telomeres. You would just check them by going to them against all the other telomeres. So oftentimes you'd have like one genome with a singleton read. You look at it, you'd see there is like you know, an A turned to a T at the very end. You look at the FASTQ file, see all oh, the signal for low sequence quality. That was probably part of that, uh, part of that cluster. It just, you know, there was an error in the sequencing. So you wanted to find those de novo telomeres, and then we checked them, blasted them against other genes within the genome and against known retrotransposons. We see that perhaps some of these, especially the motor retrotransposons, were actually seemingly being absorbed into the telomere. And then we also found on one telomere that it kind of took from various spots in the genome. So that could be something interesting we're going to look further into. It seems like there's a bunch of different people working on this bioinformatics research at different institutions. And um, I recently interviewed another group from EKU that's working on similar research. So this is really exciting to me to see, like coming in our computer science and information section, there's a lot of this bioinformatics research that seems to be exploding. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about how your research fits in or what you know about other people's research. It's like I know, for instance, one of the other KHS winners in this category was Deeksha and Chloe. And Deeksha actually also goes to the BK, she's also part of the GAN Academy. I know their part of the research was about basically trying to figure out ways to better assemble genomic data in order to include the telomeres. So they're basically trying to kind of improve how the that's put together. So that's what they worked on. And then there's like a lot of other people working on it too. That's pretty exciting stuff. It's great to see, like for the Kentucky Academy of Science, it's great for us to see collaborations in between institutions. And I think that's just a great example of what we can do as scientists, even if we're stuck at home sometimes. You talked about these two different methods that you all were, were using to analyze your data. And um, if you just want to say anything else about just that experimental process. I mean, I think a yeah. lot of people don't understand as scientists, sometimes you have to build the tools that you use to actually do the scientific analysis, right? 
Yeah. As was part of our kind of studying, so while I was, so while Seth was working on Chile for Ochitatwe's scoring matrix, I was actually working on my own more rudimentary analysis software just to get it kind of off the ground. So this one just uses direct Unix commands. It uses grep, it uses blast, it uses, uh, particularly used a lot of Python directories that was very useful in sorting the data, but it used direct string matching. So it would look for telomeres. I would just, you know, directly grep it. It was just a string searching software. The, you know, three telomere repeats against the genome, take all of those, and then take all that data, put it through a Python directory. So it would just create new categories. And then I was, but it was, you know, direct string matching does a lot of false negatives because sequence calling like that just drops off at the end. Sometimes just one or two base pair differences that really shouldn't exist, it was just poor reads, would get created into different categories. You have to go check that. One of the more surprising things was that we figured that although mine was, method was less accurate, it would probably be a bit faster because it's just doing direct string comparison. Well, actually, CES was both faster and more accurate. So there's basically almost, basically almost like the perfect method compared to mine, but it was, yeah, it's kind of interesting just to compare those two, because one of them is, of course, more rudimentary and used a lot of existing tools just to make a pipeline. Well, in contrast, CES was coded in C++, used a different software, and then I would just take that data and run it through a new pipeline that would compare it against all the other telomeres to search for false negatives and then blast it in order to see what exactly these de novo telomeres even were. That is really interesting. And um, it sounds like you all learned a lot in this process. Yeah. I'm really excited to hear about it. I wanted to mention that anybody who is interested in finding out more can read your abstract, but they can actually also watch your whole presentation at our website, which is kyscience.org. We have our online program there. And anyone who missed our annual meeting uh, for the Kentucky Academy of Science can go there and they can see everyone's presentation. So thanks so much, Trey, for talking to us today. Appreciate you joining us. And everybody, thanks for tuning in to Bench Talk. Thank you for having me on. And thank you, Amanda Fuller of Kentucky Academy of Science. Now let's hear from Scott Miller of Maysville Community and Technical College on the physics of baking a cake. Today, it's Cooking with Scott. Scott here. When one hears the word physics, it would not be unusual to start to imagine equations of various complexities dancing in one's head. According to the Oxford Dictionary, physics is the branch of science concerned with the nature and properties of matter and energy. The subject matter of physics, distinguished from that of chemistry and biology, includes mechanics, heat, light, and other radiation sound, electricity, magnetism, and the structure of atoms. Heady stuff. But every once in a while, there is a practical side to physics. It might be understanding why things fall as we see them do quite often. It might be seen when watching a car travel down a road, or even when we see a car coming toward us when we drive down a road. Turn on lights, a television, or your computer, and we understand that electricity is what makes that happen. So, conceptually, we are aware of the physics applications around us, even if we don't want to deal with those equations. So, it was not too surprising, though, to admit, a little, that I ran across an article in the April issue of Physics Today titled, A Taste of Soft Matter Physics. Now, I am not overly interested in soft matter, being more interested in the application of physics to astronomical phenomenon, but the subheading hinted that there was more to this article than just another area of the realm of physics. So I decided to read it. 
The surprise was that the article dealt with a book called Science and Cooking, Physics Meets Food from Homemade to Oat Cuisine. The book was written by Harvard University professors Michael Brenner, Pia Sorensen, and David Weitz. They had developed a highly successful science class on cooking primarily geared toward non-science majors. Their book title follows from that of their course. Its objective, like their course, was to use cooking to teach underlying concepts of soft matter science. The book attempts to describe science in simple terms and apply it to recipes from world-famous chefs. Seven chapters in all, it includes chapters more commonly associated with cooking, the science of food ingredients or the effects of changing temperature or pH on phase transitions of food molecules. Later chapters go into diffusion, viscosity, elasticity, emulsions, and foams, topics specifically related to soft matter physics. It even includes a chapter on fermentation and its connection to biology and chemistry. The authors describe food properties such as taste, texture, and flavor, tying them to basic chemistry. They explain processes like diffusion and elasticity using the concept of random walks for the former, and simple quantitative calculations for the latter. Well, it is a physics-related text, so you would expect an equation or two. The recipes chosen, more than a hundred scattered throughout the book, illustrate the various topics in soft matter physics the authors want to expand on for their readers. Though there are some more challenging recipes included, many of them instruct readers on how to make simple yet delicious items, including ceviche, cheese, cookies, cakes, sauces, and beverages that require only ingredients and tools found in most kitchens. A follow-up article read on in the same book also included a recipe along with some of the physics behind it. So if you are interested in trying your hand at molten chocolate cake, I am including the contents of that article as follows. I will speak slowly for those taking notes. The ingredients include... 130 grams of dark chocolate chips, 120 grams of unsalted butter, one stick, two whole eggs plus two egg yolks, 100 grams of sugar, 60 grams of all-purpose flour, and a pinch of salt. The directions would be Preheat the oven to 350 degrees Fahrenheit or 177 degrees Celsius. Spray eight ramekins with nonstick baking spray. In a low saucepan, melt the chocolate and butter together over low heat, stirring constantly. In a medium bowl, whisk together the eggs, egg yolks, and sugar. In another bowl, whisk together the flour and salt. Slowly add the chocolate mixture to the egg mixture, whisking constantly. Little by little, add the flour mixture to the wet ingredients and whisk well. Make sure the flour is completely incorporated. Fill the prepared ramekins with batter so that they are a little more than half full. 1.5 centimeters to 2 centimeters from the top. Place the ramekins on a middle rack of an oven and bake for 12 minutes. Serve warm, preferably topped with ice cream. Now the physics notes on this are as follows. A mole, 
By estimating the number of molecules of each ingredient, we can create a mental picture of what the mixture will look like on the microscopic scale. A pinch of salt contains about as many, or potentially even more, molecules as a cup of flour, because flour molecules are a couple thousand to a couple million times as large as salt molecules. Packing. Flour and sugar particles can pack more or less densely, so cooks prefer measuring quantities by weight rather than by volume. In our class, every student weighs a cup of flour, and we compile the results. They can vary by 30% or more. In addition, the actual temperature of the ovens set to 350 degrees Fahrenheit can vary by 8 degrees Fahrenheit or more, or over 20%. For some recipes, precise oven temperatures and exact measurements are critical, but molten chocolate cake is a fairly robust recipe that tends to work regardless. Phase Transitions the exact temperatures at which chocolate and butter melt are determined by the length, saturation, and internal arrangement of their fatty acids. Chocolate, for example, can have six different crystalline phases, each of which melts at different temperature. Solubility. Sugar will begin to dissolve in the water contained in the egg white. Sugar is highly soluble in water. At room temperature, a given quantity of sugar can dissolve in half the amount of water by weight. Protein denaturation. Adding the hot chocolate butter mixture to the eggs too quickly will cause the egg proteins to denature and cook. To avoid that outcome, add a little of the mixture at a time while constantly whisking. Viscosity, polymers, emulsions, and foams. The final batter's viscosity is determined by various ingredients. Whisking causes the starch particles in the flour to swell and leak polymers. The polymers entangle and form a network that, together with the swollen starch particles, increases the viscosity of the batter. Whisking also incorporates air and creates a foam. The result is an emulsion of fat, butter, and water, egg white. The final viscosity depends on the volume fractions of air bubbles and fat droplets, along with the packing density and starch particles of the network of polymers. Solubility of gases and foams. When heated in the oven, the cake rises because air in the batter expands. Moreover, solubility of carbon dioxide decreases with higher temperature, so the carbon dioxide diffuses out of the batter and helps form the bubbles in the cake. Heat diffusion. How far does heat diffuse in 12 minutes? To answer that question, measure the thickness of the cooked layer. As the cake bakes, the batter around the edges reaches the temperature at which it solidifies and forms a crumb front that moves toward the center of the cake. The characteristic molten center consists of batter that is heated but not cooked. By measuring the thickness of the solidified layer L and keeping track of how long you bake the cake T, you can estimate an important physical constant, namely the diffusion constant of heat in water. From the heat diffusion coefficient of the batter D is equal to L squared over 4T because cake batter is mostly water. See if you can get within an order of magnitude of the value in the literature 0.0014 centimeters squared per second. Congrats, you've calculated a physical constant with a molten chocolate cake. Aren't you glad you asked? Enjoy your baking and enjoy the physics involved. That was Scott Miller, physicist at Maysville Community and Technical College. Thanks for making me hungry, Scott. And now, noted poet Leslie Moise with her take 
on the physics of cooking. The cooking equation. Matter and energy, heat and light, physics meets food. A list of ingredients doesn't look scientific, but add temperature and electricity, fermentation and emulsification, you get taste and texture, elasticity. Who knew cookies and cakes were science, not just delicious? Hot molten chocolate cake, a lesson in physics. Whisking, ramekins, baked molecules, precise yet robust, crystalline phases, melting solubility, viscosity, and foam all become a tempting physical constant. That was author Leslie Moise with her poem, The Cooking Equation, written specifically for this episode. Thank you, Leslie. Oh, we gotta go. You've been listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. See you next week.